14 is the command, you shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment, commit no adultery. I don't need to spend a lot of time convincing you that this commands about sexual fidelity and our culture has thrown sexual fidelity to the wind. I mean, we know that. We know we've got a problem. Just as last week we looked at the problem of murder and how we, we kind of concluded we're all murderers. We're all in need of Christ and salvation and forgiveness from that sin. Again, we look at our hearts this morning as we look at the commandment of adultery. And just as we sang, what amazing grace that God would come down and save adulterers. And just as he saves murderers. And we look at this command and said, we're living among an adulterous uh, community, uh, an adulterous society. Four in ten, just quick survey, let me give you four things. Four in ten American adults believe marriage is now obsolete. We don't need it. Forty-eight percent of Americans, uh, marriage age, 20 plus, uh, are married. Only 48% of our adults in America are currently married. When I was born, it was 72%. That's a huge shift in our lifetime. Marriage is obsolete, and we're backing it up with our practice. We're not getting married like we used to. Three, um, it's one half, one out of two men, and one third, one out of three women have already committed an extramarital affair in our country. And then here's the fourth kicker that shows we've thrown it to the wind, sexual fidelity. The average age in which our kids are exposed to pornography is eight years old. So if you haven't had the sex talk between first and second grade, you're behind. Because our culture is teaching our kids sexual fidelity doesn't matter. How do you respond to that kind of inundation of our culture that we don't need marriage? We don't need sexual fidelity. You respond by getting back to God's Word. Getting back to Christ and saying, no, we need an absolute standard of authority. We need absolute standard of morality. God says, yes. And the one I give you is sexual fidelity by not committing adultery. I want men and women to remain together and be faithful to one another. So I want us to look, first of all, at this whole relationship of sexual uh, fidelity uh, and think about why God even proposed it. First of all, marriage is a creation ordinance. Let's look at where marriage began. So turn with me in your Bibles back to Genesis 2. And we'll also look at Genesis 1. But Genesis 2, verse 18. This is where it began for us. 
Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And we know the story. How God created Adam first. He said, well, that's not all I want. So he creates Eve. Verse 24, chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this is language given to us before there was a father and mother. But God is saying, I want that primary relationship that starts in a family, a father and a mother having children. I want a man to take up a wife and consider that more primary than the relationship he's had at that point with his father and mother. And I want the wife to do the same thing. I want one man, one woman married, and I want them to be unashamedly together forever. Now, why? Go back to chapter 1 of Genesis, page 1 of your Bible, verse 28. No, excuse me, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Stop and think about that. God says, the triune God, it says, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, say, let's make man look like us. And for man to look like us, notice what that involves. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth now think about this to look like God God says I want to create a male and a female and I want them to bear my image. The only way we can bear God's image is if a male is united with a female and they reproduce. He says, I want you to go and be fruitful. I want you to reproduce because I want my image to be all throughout the earth. You have to bear my image. And that can only occur through the union of a male and a female, it doesn't occur through the union of a male and a male, or a female and a female, or someone identifies as something other than they are. Just doesn't happen. Now, why is all this important? I call it a creation ordinance. In other words, this was established by God with creation. Marriage is not socially engineered. It's not some social scientist got together and says, We're in a fix, we're in a mess, we ought to get married. Marriage was not designed to redeem us out of sin. It wasn't to fix us for some problem. Marriage was designed to show us God. The very image of God. And that picture of God cannot be seen except by the union of a male with a female. Now if you break that union, that's adultery. God doesn't want it broke. He designed it. 
to be together so we could see Him. God never has been adulterous to us. That would not be bearing His image. So now we begin to see how important that seventh command is. It's just not so that we can have an easy life. It's so that the image of our God is seen throughout the earth, generation after generation. Number two, marriage is God's design for sexual expression. God not only created our bodies to look like Him, male and female together, but He created our bodies with urges for one another. We call those sexual urges, passions. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And you see, God says, marriage is where that happens. Doesn't, it's not supposed to happen somewhere else. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. It says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, again, notice the emphasis, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. God designed us in such a way, He says, I don't want immorality. I don't want you throwing sexual immorality to the wind. And, and the way you don't do that is you have a husband or you have a wife. Verse 3, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That's where you are to take care of those sexual passions. It's called conjugal rights. It's to happen in the marriage. Verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn. Paul says here, he says, I'm a single man. And I actually recommend singleness. Everybody can't be married. Some people need to be single for different reasons. Paul says, but God's designed most of us with these sexual passions. If you have these sexual passions for the opposite sex, he says, they're to be taken care of in marriage. That's what marriage is for. Go get you a husband. Go get you a wife. Marriage is designed for sex to occur there and not somewhere else. Commit no adultery. Adultery is sex outside of marriage not sex within the confines of marriage. So understand um, that, and again, that passage, there's just so many passages in Scripture. Each man has one woman. One woman has one husband. It's, it's not promoting homosexual relationships. It's not promoting lesbian relationships. That passage doesn't pr promote it. Genesis 1 doesn't promote it. Genesis 2 doesn't promote it. Uh, Leviticus 18, don't let men lie together with men or women with women. Why? It's not the marriage God designed. It doesn't image God. Romans 1 talks about when you slip into all sorts of sexual immorality, you're leaving the design God created. We have a world that promotes leaving the design. We must get back and see the relationship God has designed is a marriage between one man and one woman. Number three, marriage is the only means for undefiled sex. You need this verse if you don't have it. Hebrews chapter 13. Turn here with me. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13, 
Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Think about what that's saying. Everyone, he says, I want everybody to hold marriage up as the honorable design. I don't want people despising marriage. And yet four in ten in our culture do so right now openly. He says, no, I want you to be promoting marriage because it's, it's, it's what replicates the image of God on earth. I want you to see marriage is to be held in honor among everybody and let the marriage bed be considered holy, pure, undefiled. That's where sex is never wrong in the marriage bed. It's a holy bed. It's an undefiled, it's a pure place for sexual activity. Outside of that, it's adulterous. It's immoral. God says, this is the design. Marriage is the only means for that undefiled, being that undefiled realm of pure and holy and beautiful sexual relationships. And then number four, marriage images God with His church. Look at... Um, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Quite a statement. Long section where God creates an analogy. And the analogy is marriage. And so if you mess with the analogy, going backwards, you're messing with, again, God's Design. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. And here's where the analogy starts. Even as. So this is like Christ, who is the head of the church, his body and, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church, so the analogy goes on, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, analogy, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we're members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two, it's not three, four, or five, it's the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So you can't miss it. He says, this is a divine analogy. Marriage gives you a picture of Christ's union, connection with his church. Just as Christ has never abandoned his people, never 
been an adulterer. He's been faithful. He says, I want you to have that picture of Christ in his church in your marriage. Um, Again, I already said it once, but I want to say it again. I just want to be sensitive to those in the room that are single. God's not saying singleness is wrong. Like I said, the Apostle Paul recommended it. He said, I am one. But, nevertheless, by design, God says, there must be marriage. There must be marriage. That's the norm. So that God's image is born throughout the earth. It's the relationship of marriage and a sexually faithful marriage that shows us and the world Christ's relationship to the church that bears God's image throughout the world. Um, So we need this sexual fidelity to honor God, to worship God, to adore God, to be in His design, to have His divine blessings, to have what the world creates in immorality, to have it purely without defilement in any way. That's the sexual relationship. Now let's move on to, uh, I, I, I call this the requirements for sexual fidelity. Let's, let's erase that. Let's call it like the revelation of sexual infidelity, marriage infidelity. What, what, what's involved when we really get more specific with marriage infidelity? And I've got six things there, but where I want to go before I get to those six I want you to remind you how Christ expands the commandments. We saw that last week with murder. We see it again this week. So look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Uh, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 27. And we see that adultery is not just something we do with our bodies. Matthew 5, verse 27 says... Jesus, this is one of his sermons, he's preaching, and this is where he comes to the seventh commandment in his sermon. He says, you have heard, Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And we're thinking, oh yeah, I got that, seventh commandment. Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, let's just tell you how serious this is. You look, your your right eye causes you to sin, so you're just looking at someone else can cause you to sin. He says, if that happens, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your eyes, one of your members, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, then it's your whole body go in to hell. So Christ is saying, man, this seventh commandment, you've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery. Glad you've heard it. Glad you got that commandment down. But let's expand it a little bit. Because adultery doesn't just happen because you left your husband or you left your wife to have a relationship with somebody else. Adultery happens when you, when you think it. Adultery happens when you see it and you want to embrace it. So just embracing this culture, if you say, uh, yeah, sorry I'm in this culture, but I embrace it. No, no, no. He says, that's adultery right there. The way you're thinking is wrong. Um, And it's so wrong, you would be better off to have 
radical surgery than to go there. I mean, that's, it's radical to gouge out an eye. It's radical to cut off a hand. Jesus is making a strong, radical statement that the sin of adultery is a very serious thing. Why? That's why I want to kind of get into it. It is so serious. Probably none of you have ever had a discipleship class on radical repentance where you gouge out eyes and cut off arms, have you? We, we don't typically treat sin as seriously as God does. That it's because of the wages of sin, we die and are thrown into the pits of hell. And Jesus says, start thinking about how serious sin is. One of the things that the seventh commandment, breaking it, does, it, it involves a broken covenant. Every time I commit adultery with my eyes, with my heart, with my body, I am breaking a covenant with God, not just my covenant with my wife. See, that takes it to a whole nother level. That was his design. Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6. Beginning at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? What he means there is when we receive Christ, Christ comes into us, we're united. So now we are so together, we're members of one another. Shall I then take the members of Christ? So it's, it's almost like my arm is Christ's arm. My eyes are Christ's eyes, to use the previous passage. Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Where is that written? It's written about marriage. And the prostitute analogy is saying, you know, if I touch her, do you not realize if, if, if my hand is Christ's hand, I am putting Christ's hand on a prostitute. And of course, he's taking it further than that. If I have sexual relationships with her, do you not realize you're, you're literally putting Christ with that prostitute, he says it was never designed to be that way because we just sang a song about, about we who are sinners, how can we who are sinners touch he who is holy? When we commit adultery, we're taking the holy Christ that we're in covenant with, we are united with, and we're uniting our holy Christ to what is unholy. He says, no. We didn't get into an agreement for that to occur. That's breaking the covenant arrangement and design. It should never happen that way. Second, uh, let's see, it, it not only breaks covenant, without repentance, it condemns the soul. Go back a few verses there in 1 Corinthians, and you see verse 9 of chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality. It goes on, but what's he saying? The activity itself characterizes those who are condemned to hell. They don't inherit. It's the way the verse starts. You don't inherit the kingdom of God with this practice. This practice is contrary to union with God, and union with God is what heaven is all about. Is seeing our union with God realized. Um, seated it also, I, I won't even go here. Number three, it involves what is needless. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, every man has his own wife, every wife has her own husband. We already looked at that. Uh, so you say, well, I've got these sexual passions, and I don't know what to do with them. He said, I already told you, go find a husband, go find a wife. If you can't control those urges, you must marry. That was by design. I mean, it, it, it's... it's I, why, why do we like certain people? Why are we attracted to certain people? It's by design. Uh, we see, you know, this hunk that you know looks something like me probably and we say I'm attracted to that or we see this beautiful babe and say, I'm attracted to that why by design because God wanted us every man to have his own wife every wife to have her own husband so he put that into our DNA he gave us these passions and he tells us um Breaking that, becoming an, uh, an adulteress keeps us from having the passions we need in marriage. Number four, um, it involves a death sentence. You've probably already seen that. I'm trying to think how much time I have. You've already seen it um, in, the, in the passages that we've looked at, that immorality leads to death, death leads to hell. Uh, the Leviticus passage talks about uh, when adultery occurred in the Old Testament, then it was a death sentence. They stoned them. We still have the death sentence in South Carolina. And if you were on death row in South Carolina, you're going to get death either by the electric chair or we've added to it now the firing squad. Just imagine if, if the civil law of the Old Testament were, were our civil law, then we would be on death row for adultery. And a death of adultery, even thinking it, looking it, puts us on death row. It's a death sentence where society realizes marriage is so important, it's so high and honored and lifted up that we destroy those who don't honor it. Um, number five, it involves a drain on financial resources. And number six, it involves the destruction of reputation. Let's look at both of those. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6, verse 26, involves a drain on financial resources. It says, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Think about the contrast. There's what's trying to get you to do. 
what is a precious life worth? It's worth a whole lot more than a loaf of bread. A married woman, a godly woman, she's not going to sell a precious life for a loaf of bread. I mean, that's the comparison we're getting here. Why would we give up the riches of a precious life, preciousness for immorality? It drains us. Immorality drains us from all the riches of a precious life. You'll see it involves also the destruction. Ah, lost my finger in Proverbs. Um, the destruction of reputation. Look at Proverbs 6, 32 and 33. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. This is one of the sins you wonder, you know, why is it you could commit so many sins and people kind of sweep them under the rug? But when you commit a sexual sin, it doesn't seem to get swept under the rug. People remember it forever. Again, God's design says, You'll get wounds and dishonor and disgrace that's not wiped away. Um, it stays with us. It's a reputation. You can die and people still remember your sexual offenses. It's just not wiped away. It's, 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 it's the destruction of reputation forever. It's... it's um, as we had Veterans Day uh, this past week, we honor our uh, men and women who have served our country. Uh, some of them are wounded warriors. We honor them for that wound. We lift them up. But God says when it comes to immorality, comes to adultery, no honor. It's dishonor. The reputation's destroyed. And we remember those people in disgrace forever. It's, it's, it's just one of those sins It's just difficult to ever wipe away. It's a destruction of our honor. Uh, thinking about the death sentence, let me just back up a little bit. Um, yeah, in God's civil economy, we would have been stoned for it. We've moved beyond that now, and uh, it's not likely that we're going to put adultery into South Carolina law. So we see God has inflicted death sentence upon us without going there. God is just God. Where did we get all of our STDs? Sexually transmitted diseases. And some people get, have a real hard time saying, well, David, I... I don't like you saying that's a divine judgment because some people get those diseases and they weren't sexually immoral. I understand that. Those are the exceptions. The reason they have the disease is because somebody before them had the diseases and passed those diseases to them. And that's one of the consequences of living in a culture where these diseases exist. And they exist because of immorality. 
And say, how do you know it's divine justice? Well, let me just ask you this. If nobody on our planet or in this country committed sexual immorality for one generation, for one generation, what would happen to sexually transmitted diseases? They'd be gone. Because they don't occur in marriage. They occur through the immorality, the breaking of the marriage covenant. You can eradicate many diseases just by being holy. There are consequences to not following God's commands. And that's the whole point. So, okay, let me get to the last point. And that is the remedy. What can we do? How can we remedy an unholy, adulterous life? Well, first of all, repent. Repent. It's necessary. As That's the same passage we looked at a minute ago, Matthew 5. It's as necessary as cutting off a hand or gouging out an eye. Repentance means turn from what we're doing and turn to God and embrace His way. Quit, quit the past, start the new, start God's way, which is marriage fidelity. Repentance, turn. Um, that's the first thing. Second, love your husband. Love your wife. Infidelity in marriage starts when we stop Loving our husband and our wife. Look again at Proverbs, this time chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5, beginning at verse 18. Proverbs 5, 18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? God doesn't want our sexual passions to just be Pent up. He says, have a husband, have a wife, and then take some time for sexual fun. Take the time. He said, I want you to be intoxicated. I want you to be delighted. I want you to be thrilled. And we relegate it to something other than what it is, what God's designed it to be, not understanding God. He says, I want the marriage bed to be wonderful, honored, and I want it to be pure, and I want it to be undefiled, but I want it to be the marriage bed. I want it to be what it was designed to be. So love your husband. Love your wife. Take time. If you don't have it on your schedule, take time to have fun with your spouse. That's a requirement. God says, that's wise. That's wisdom. Because that's the way... God says, I designed it to be. Um, number three, flee immorality. Let's think about that. 1 Corinthians 6. We looked at some of this passage. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, makes this quick statement. Flee. That's where our, the word comes from. Flee from sexual 
immorality. Direct command. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You're taking your own body and uniting it to what is unholy. So flee that. Now, let me just give you three quick ways you can flee that. Number one, you commit immorality with your eyes, right? Not just your body, but with your eyes. The eyes is part of your body. You look upon someone else and say, I want that. So turn your eyes. If you're going to flee, means turn your eyes to look at something else. If your eyes are causing you to sin, turn them off. If it's on the computer, if it's on your phone, if it's on, in a book, if it's on the street, if it's on the show, whatever. Turn your eyes. Make a covenant that your eyes will look at what's right and holy and pure. Turn your eyes to what you need to be looking at so that you don't turn into lusting. How about your thoughts? Number two, you want to flee. So flee with your eyes. Flee with your thoughts. Do you ever have thoughts? I wonder what life would be like with her. I wonder what life would be like with him. I wonder what life would be like if I just did it different, but not with the one I'm with. Those thoughts, how do you change your thoughts? We have to redirect our mind. We have to feed our brains with better thoughts. And one of the best ways to do that, we'll look at it tonight, I'm sure, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, you know this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, you know how it goes? And, and then as he gets towards the end, and deliver us from temptation. When's the last time he prayed that prayer? Lord, deliver me from these thoughts. I am being tempted right now in my head. Change my thoughts, O oh God. Deliver me from temptation. That's fleeing immorality. You flee with your eyes. You flee with your thoughts. You certainly can flee uh, with your body by just running. Uh, but perhaps... We forget what we're running from. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. Maybe you need to flee your body, move your body away from certain associations. You're hanging out with people that are corrupting you. They're feeding you the bad thoughts. They're feeding you the bad images. They're feeding you different doctrines. And those doctrines are corrupting your lifestyle. Bad company corrupts good morals. So flee that company. Flee that association so that you can flee immorality. Well, the last one up there. Be diligent to keep the fear of God in our hearts. Powerful verse. Look at Proverbs 16, verse 6. Proverbs 16, Verse 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Now that takes some time to really think through and meditate. By the fear of God... One turns away from evil. How's the fear of God doing that for you? Um, 
to, to me, again, it, it shows the importance of our gathering here today. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves as is the habit of some. Why? Because when we assemble, we encourage one another to love and good deeds. We encourage one another to worship, to sing praise, to thank God, to revere God. That's fear God. When it says, by the fear of God, you can turn away from evil. In other words, if you get in this community or similar community of believers, you get into a place where you're worshiping, you're thanking, you're revering God. You're creating an environment in your heart, in your head, your eyes, where you don't want what's unholy. You want God. You want holy. And you want it more and more and more. So for us to flee immorality, I'm saying we got to stir up spiritual disciplines. And one of the spiritual disciplines is the fellowship of the saints. Stir that up. Always be around the right people. The people of God. Stir up for the fear of God. Stir up Bible reading. Bible memorization. Bible meditation. Stir up your prayer life. Come together and pray. As you stir up any of these spiritual disciplines, it is taking you to a place of fearing God. As that becomes your occupation, you are occupied less and less with immorality, with what is unholy. The fear of God will enable you to flee from immorality. Now, I'll give you an example. You remember Joseph in the book of Genesis, chapter 39, and he goes before Potiphar's wife, and she grabs him into, pulls him into the bedroom, says, come to bed with me. And he's pulling back, loses his coat, and runs. And what does the text say? As he's running out the door, he says, how could I do that and sin against God? The thought of his mind, the thought of his heart. I fear my God. I love my God too much to stay in that room with you. See, it was the fear of God, the love of God that gave him moral power. Because all the disciplines of God were so stirred up and alive in his life. That he didn't want anything to do with immorality. He just wanted to please Jesus. To please you means I, I don't please God. I want to please God. That's why I said the Proverbs 16 passage is such a powerful verse. If you grasp it, the more you have the fear of God in your life, the less you'll have immorality in your life. Those are the remedies that get us out of this sexual damage that we're in. Two quick things. I'm an adulterer. I bet most of you are too. I've committed this sin. This is I've committed murder. I've turned to things I should have never turned to. What I've found over and over is that no matter how great my sin, God's grace is greater. This is not an unpardonable sin. 
And if you're a sinner like me, you can be pardoned as well. You can be forgiven. One of my favorite verses in all the scriptures, first Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians 5, 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He who knew no sin, or God made him who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now let's break it down. God made Christ Jesus who didn't ever commit adultery. He made him an adulterer. He made him take my sin so that I could take his righteousness. That's the kind of pardon God offers you. He will take your sin and in exchange give you his righteousness. It doesn't get, the deal doesn't get any better. Why would we not flee from sin and flee to Christ? God, heal me, cleanse me, a sinner. Let's pray together. Father,